Well, good morning. You made it out. Did you see how hot it's supposed to be today? That's, of course, why we're, we're meeting earlier than normal. Um, but this is the, uh, the strong. I guess this is how we weed out the strong and discover who's the, uh, the brave ones. Make it out this morning. Uh, way to go. I'm proud of you. I, I love that our church values the time together. We want to be together. We want to hear the Word of God. And uh, 115 degree heat's not going to stop us. Uh, I want you to open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. If you got my email um, this week, I promise that I would be shorter today. And um, I know that many of you laugh when you hear that I'm going to try to be shorter. Uh, I did chop off a whole section of my notes, so I'm only bringing up uh, two pages of notes today, which will uh, be much less of a sermon that I had originally planned as I saw the week getting hotter. So we're actually going to do something a little bit interesting. I want you to take a look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 3. I'm going to point out to you just kind of the, something with the text here to, to show you something that's interesting in the text, and then I'm going to give you a rationale for why we're going to do it the way we're going to do it. In chapter 3, verse 20, uh, it kind of comes at the end of that section we looked at the last couple weeks where Jesus chooses the 12. You see that in verses 13 to 19? He chooses the 12, and then in verse 20, um, there's a little section about his family hearing about what Jesus is doing. We'll read it. You see that in verses 20 and 21. And then there's an entire section from verses 22 to 30 about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is kind of a heavy topic. You know, it's a topic that we have a lot of questions. Jesus, in that section, talks about a sin that is committed that's called an eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness. That's a heavy topic. And since I wanted to be able to treat that carefully and to make sure that we understand what's happening, what we're going to do is we're going to read and look at verses 20 and 21. And then if you look at after that section about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you look at verses 31 to 35, and in, it says in verse 31, it's talking about his mothers and his brothers coming to him. It actually picks up where verse 21 left off. So those two are kind of like the, the bread of a sandwich. You got two sections that really are the same thing, talking about family of Jesus. And in the middle, you got this section about this eternal sin. We're just going to talk about Jesus' family this morning. And we're going to leave next week to discuss the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what that is, how to understand it. And uh, we're going to look at that text in a little more detail. Is that fair? So we'll get through this a little bit quicker than usual. Let's start by reading verses 20 and 21. Then he went home. This is would have been Jesus going back to Capernaum. I mentioned in chapter 1 is the home of Peter and Andrew. He went home and the crowd gathered again. This is that same crowd that's following wherever he goes. These massive crowds. They gathered again so that they could not even eat. So the crowd is so big, they can't get their food out. They don't have time to just sit down and eat. In verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Who's his family? Well, this would have been Mary. We have no indication that Joseph is part of the picture yet, because if you look down in verse 21, it says that his mother and his brothers came. So it says nothing about Joseph. Joseph might have been dead at this point because Joseph really isn't brought up 
uh, throughout the rest of the gospel accounts. Um, and so just here, Mary, Mary and Joseph would have had a couple sons or a few sons after Jesus was born. And so they would have been basically Jesus's half brothers. And you say, well, what's happening here? Jesus's ministry is getting so popular. The crowds are gathering so much around him. His name and his fame is spreading throughout the land that back in Podunk town, rural Nazareth, Jesus's family hears about Jesus. Uh, sweet Mary is probably in her 40s at this stage, late 40s, and, and these, old, these sons that she has are, are thinking, what in the world is Jesus doing? Uh, he's, he's got these crowds and he's teaching them. And it says there in verse uh, 21, when they heard of what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him. If you have an NASB, uh, the, the translation is take custody of him. Or a King James says lay hold of him. Or the NET says restrain him. The ESV uses the word seize. And it's, the, it's a good translation. The word is used eight other times in the book of Mark. And it's referring to an actual arrest. Like arresting someone to take them into custody to bring them uh, against their will by force uh, out of the situation they're in. This is what the family wants to do with Jesus. The, 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 his own family is not really getting who he is. His own family, his own mother, his brothers are not sure about the reality of Jesus. Is, so they want to arrest him in a sense. They want to go up and seize him. And they say that the rationale for doing this is at the end of verse 21. He's out of his mind. He's nuts. He's off his rocker. The monkeys are out of the cage. He's going bonkers here. And, and the family of Jesus needs to do something about it. So if up to this point, if you've been tracking, Jesus has been accused of blasphemy, Mark chapter 2. He's been accused of befriending sinners by the Pharisees, chapter 2. He's been accused of not fasting the way he's supposed to. He's been accused of violating the Sabbath. And all of these accusations have been hurled at him by Pharisees. Here it's his own family. Sweet Mary, who watched him grow up. Now an older woman. Jesus' half-brothers, who, man, it must have been hard to be Jesus' half-brother growing up in a household. He does everything perfect, and you're messing up everything all the time. And they see what he's doing, and they want him to stop embarrassing himself, and so they're going to go seize him. His own family misidentified him. Let's just get that in our mind. His own family, the people who thought they knew him the best, got him wrong. They, they misunderstood what was happening. They, they didn't quite get it. Let's just tuck that away. We'll remember that. There's another group that misidentifies him, verse 22. And this is what we're going to talk about next week. You see this, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, <laughs> uh, the prince of demons. That is Satan himself. Uh, we're going to talk about that next week. Basically, the family is demonstrated as misunderstanding Jesus, calling him crazy. The scribes from Jerusalem mis misidentify Jesus by actually saying he's in league with Satan. He's in league with the devil. The reason he has his power is because he's tapping into the power of the evil one. Here you have two groups of people who are getting Jesus wrong. His very own family and the religious elite coming from Jerusalem, the capital city, have gotten Jesus wrong. 
I think there are a lot of people who say they know Jesus and get Jesus wrong. Both of these groups make strong, confident assertions about what's happening with Jesus, and both of them are wrong. The family thinks they know him. They think they know what's going on, and they're wrong. And the scribes think they know him, and they think they know what's going on, and they're wrong. And so who really knows Jesus? Who actually understands who he is? It's kind of a question that this text wants you to ask. Who really is getting Jesus for who he actually is? We're going to skip verses 22 to 30 and look at verses 31 to 35. So at this point, his mother and his brothers come. It says his mother and his brothers came, so they've made the journey from Nazareth now. They're coming to Capernaum where Jesus and his disciples are, and they're together. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. So the, the family's outside, and they're calling, hey, Jesus, uh, hey, Jesus. Uh, and they, they probably get someone from the crowd, hey, could you go in and get Jesus? Tell him his mother is here. Tell him his brothers are here. The Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Sitting around at my table last night with my family, I asked them, what do you think Jesus would do in this situation. Your family just came looking for you. And here they are, and they're calling for you. What do you think Jesus would say uh, when his mother came and his brothers came? Well, well what would you say? They, they just traveled all this time to come see you. Uh, and we came up with all kinds of answers, but we, we were surprised by what Jesus did. Isn't that surprising by how he responds here? Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you, Jesus. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? What an interesting response. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus says. And looking about at those who sat around him, that would have been his disciples and, and some others maybe that had wanted to follow him and listen to him. And the 12 and the crowd, of course, is bustling outside. And he makes this statement, and this, I think, is to... To, to drive home the main point of this whole section, he says this, looking around about at, at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who really knows Jesus? Is it the family that has seen him grow up and the family that has been near him most of his life, and even the family that shares some of his genetics. Apparently not. They're wrong in this section. Is it the religious elite? Is it those who kind of hold the keys to the uh, leadership in Judaism? The scribes from Jerusalem, are they the ones who really know the truth about Jesus? Well, apparently not. Who really knows Jesus? Who is really part of Jesus' family? who is really part of the genuine spiritual family that Jesus is creating? What is the fundamental mark of a genuine, true uh, disciple of Jesus Christ? What distinguishes a true Christian who will one day be in heaven versus the fraud who will follow Jesus, who will claim to know Jesus, but at the last day will be found to be wanting true salvation? Who is it? How do you know them? How do you identify them? This statement that Jesus makes at the end of this section is 
critical for us to understand what marks a true disciple, a true member of God's family is marked by this. You see this? Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God is part of Jesus' family. Whoever submits himself or herself to God and to God's will given to us in God's word, that person is part of God's spiritual family. That is to say that people who resist God's will, resist God's word, and yet still, still try to claim that they have a relationship with God are wrong. I mean, Jesus could be seen as so harsh here, couldn't he? His mother and his brothers come, and Jesus is saying, who are my mother and my brothers, acting as if he doesn't even know them. And he's redefining what the family is. He's redefining the spiritual family, isn't he? And it's not based on genetics. It's not based on your religious status. It's based upon something else, or at least it's marked out by something else. The true family of God is marked out by those who do the will of God. So it's not only, as some might say, that we need to receive Jesus as a Savior. Everybody wants Jesus as a Savior. Anybody will take Jesus as a Savior to get out of judgment. But clearly, Jesus is referring to people who submit to him as Lord, to God as Lord, and they submit their lives to do his will. Let's draw out some application, and we're going to be done. Some application here. Number one, perfect sanity can look insane to the world. Perfect sanity can look insane to the world. Who is the sanest person to have ever lived? It's Jesus. He is the most sane, most perfect man. He is uh, doing everything with perfect wisdom in accordance with his call. And his very own family sees him and says he's out of his mind. Perfect sanity, even to the people who loved him most, was considered weird, crazy, not normal. See, this is something, church, that we need to understand. Our world is so insane that to be normal means to be called insane or looked at as insane or to look at as crazy. More and more, church, if we hold to biblical truth, though it is what makes us sane, though it is what connects us with reality, the more and more we hold to it, the more and more the world will consider us nuts, crazy, out of touch, detached, aloof, head in the sky, whatever word you want to use. Jesus was treated that way, and so will we, church. The moment you take this as the word of God is the same moment you begin walking down the path where the world will call you crazy. Follow Christ, and you'll be on a path toward moral clarity and sanity, and yet the world will think you're going nuts. So be it. That's the way it was with our Savior. And so it will be with us, and we will bear it with Christ. Secondly, salvation is not transmitted through genetics. 
the family that knew Jesus, and I think would have claimed to know Jesus better than anyone else, turns out did not quite get him at this point, did not quite understand who he was and what his ministry was, and so they were wrong about him even though they were his very family, and even though they shared some of his human genes. They misdiagnosed him. They misunderstood him. They didn't quite get him. And there are people today who think that because they're around Christians or raised in Christian homes or attending churches where there are a lot of Christians, that they certainly must also be a Christian because they're familiar with Jesus because they have ideas about who he is and what he did. But salvation is not transmitted just by being near people who know him. If you're a child this morning and some of you are here and you were raised in Christian homes. So I want the attention of our kids right now. And your mom and dad love the Lord and they take you to church every Sunday, even when it's 115 degrees outside. And they want to teach you the word of God. And they want to show you the gospel, and they're trying to help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. Now, children, what you need to understand is that no one gets to heaven because mom and dad love Jesus. No one gets to heaven because my parents really trusted Jesus. Children, you too must make a commitment to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You must personally and individually understand that you're a sinner. And that your sin has offended God. And that God must forgive your sin. And the way that he will do that is when you repent and turn away from your own goodness, your own attempts at impressing him, your own sin, and you turn and cast yourself at the mercy of God. Children, you must be saved just like anyone else. And maybe today is a day that you can come to Jesus right now and trust him. But just like Jesus' family, they thought they knew him just because they were close to him and in the same roof as him. But you must make a decision before God to repent and to trust him as your Lord. You must make the call. You must understand what God's call on your life. Let me just say real quick, just to to make it clear. Remember what Jesus says there at the end, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. That's my family, Jesus is saying. My family is those who do the will of God. This doesn't teach, let's be really clear about this, works salvation. That by doing God's will, if I just work hard enough and obey hard enough, I'll be able to become part of God's family. That's not what this teaches. You know what the will of God is according to this gospel so far? You find it in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It's this, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the will of God that is given to, whoever does this is welcomed in the family of God. So whether you're a child or whether you're an adult or whether you've been living a long time, the call upon your life is to repent and believe in the gospel because no one gets to heaven just by hanging around Christians or being in Christian homes or being someone familiar with Jesus. Salvation isn't transmitted that way. You must repent. You personally must commit your Lord, yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You must ask for forgiveness. You must, by faith, embrace the gospel to be true 
and then resolve to walk in obedience. Third application. In salvation, you are given a new family. Here are my mother and my brothers, Jesus says. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. In other words, there's a new family that's being created, and it's around Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new family. He is the centerpiece of this new family. And as soon as we submit to God's will for our life to repent and embrace Him as our Lord and Savior, we become uh, in the family of Christ and therefore in the same family as one another. We are all family, church, a spiritual family. We don't just come to gather on Sundays because it's cool, it's fun, it's a routine. That's part of it, perhaps. But even deeper than that, the reason why we go to church when we're sweating and we're uncomfortable and we can't meet inside though we'd like to and it's 115 degrees outside, the reason we do this is because it's part of who Christ has made us. It's part of uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These are not just friends that we're sitting around here with. This is a, a spiritual family that God is making by the power of His Son. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is family. This is deeper than blood. This is the Holy Spirit that bonds us together in this supernatural unity. These are my people. That's why we come to church. We look around and says, I'm here for you. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my father. You're my mother. You are one with me because I'm one with Christ. Friends, this is why we value the church. This is why we teach church membership. This is why if someone doesn't show up to church several weeks in a row, we get concerned. There's no legalism in this. This is because we love people who are our family and we want to care for them. This is why if you haven't seen your fellow church member in two months and you start thinking about them, that's why you start feeling a little concerned about them. And you start wondering if you should maybe reach out. You know why? It's because the Spirit lives in you and the Spirit lives in that person. And you guys have made commitments. And you say, this is my family. i got to do something about this. If one of my daughters didn't show up to dinner three nights in a row, I might do something about it. <laughs> I might, might not just say, well, I think they might have found another family to eat dinner with. The Joneses serve much better dinners, and so maybe they wanted to go check it out over there. We're, we're family. I have been given a responsibility to care for my kids because they're family. And I have been given, along with every other church member, we have been given responsibilities to love and care for our church family. Look around. These are your brothers, your sisters, your fathers, and your mothers, and Christ is our king. The point of this section is to show who really knows Christ. Who really knows Christ? His own family missed it. The scribes missed it. The people who get it are those who submit their lives to God in repentance and faith, embracing the gospel, and then commit to a life of faithful, humble obedience. Obedience will not save you, but true obedience is a mark 
an evidence that you are, in fact, a member of Christ's family? Are you living a life marked with obedience to God's will? Do you do the will of God? Do you seek out to know the will of God by reading his word and then seek to apply it to your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that this short message is a, an encouragement to us, a reminder of what it means to be your people. That as we remember who you are, you're not out of your mind. You're not possessed by demons. You are the incarnate God who demands our full allegiance. And as we submit to you, we submit our lives to a life of obedience to your will. And as we do that, we are welcomed into a family. I pray that we would get, get this right. And if there's anyone here who does not have an accurate understanding of who you are and what you've done for us, that you would open their eyes to see who you are and open their eyes to the reality of this beautiful thing called the church, this new family we've been given as we submit our lives to you. In Jesus' name.